Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Hey, a heads up. This episode contains mentions of gun violence and suicide. So please take care while listening. The first time I came out, I was saying that I'm, I'm your exact same son and I'm gay. This is this is a little bit more like saying I'm not the person you think I am. And that's I think that's more likely to be hurtful. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. A listener we're calling Jack first came out as gay to his parents when he was 19. At the time, he was in his first semester of college and home for Thanksgiving break in West Virginia. He didn't know how it was going to go. And beforehand, he made sure he could cover his living expenses in case his parents cut him off. But the conversation ended up going better than he expected. Then, in his early 30s, Jack started to feel like there was something else he needed to reveal to his dad. After growing up in a family where guns were a big part of life, for hunting, collecting, and recreational shooting, Jack no longer felt comfortable being around firearms. It's not something that I spend any time with anymore. And so the thing I need to talk to him about is that, you know, I, I don't really want to own guns anymore and I don't really want to, I don't really want to go shooting. I don't, I don't want that to be a big part of my life. He told me about this in an episode we first ran in 2021, about the urgency he felt to tell his dad and also about his fears of how his dad would react. In the two years since, Jack told me recently... A lot of that has shifted. When I listened back to it, and I sent Afi an email saying it felt a little cringy, I think was the, was the phrase I used. Cringy. Yeah. Cringy, I love that word because it's like, it's not super critical of yourself, but it's saying like, I feel a distance between that, that version and yeah, me now. Yeah, it's just, you know, and, and it's not that that past me was wrong. It's just past me hadn't gotten to where I am yet. and 
when to have a hard conversation. That's something we've talked about a lot on the show, especially when it comes to our closest relationships, when there's been a shift that makes the status quo feel like a kind of inauthentic performance. This was a recurring theme in our series about estrangement several months back. And the first time I talked with Jack, he was struggling with that. How much to name the new distance he felt from his dad. But his feelings about that are now different. And you'll hear more on what makes him cringe at the end of this episode. For Jack, this is all part of a longer process of figuring out who he is in relation to his dad, how much they have in common. As he told me two years ago, for most of Jack's life, that circled around guns. We were really close when I was when I was younger. Um, he was kind of my my hero when I was growing up, right? Like I thought my dad was the greatest person on the planet. I thought he should be president of the United States. Like, uh, but as I got older, um, he and I kind of drifted apart because I think our worldviews really changed and we had fewer and fewer things in common that we could really talk about. Um, And sort of the last bit of common language that we have left is we can talk about guns, but like, so we, we retreat to that a lot, but over the last 10 years or so, you know, I, I've just completely exited gun culture. When you to say that the common language, you know, that, that a lot has fallen away, but, but talking about guns is something you can still do. Um, Describe for me in your family, like what was what was the the conversation around guns? Like, what do you talk about when you talk about guns? Um, well, I mean, you know, it, I feel like my dad talks about guns like you think a lot of men talking about cars, like mm-hmm. you know, the, the the mechanics of it and the the numbers and all of that sort of stuff. Um, but also, uh, there's there's definitely a lot of conversation around like how important it is to have guns because you know they allow you to protect yourself and they um they are a freedom that's you know endemic to the country and uh and how important it is to um learn about them and and use them in a way that's safe that is something that he likes to talk about a lot and i do very much respect and you know also hunting is a major you know part of his life there's many aspects. And and now like when you when you talk about guns in your life now, like what what sorts of guns are you talking about? Uh well, so especially as he's gotten older, my dad has really become a, a collector. Um so he has a lot of guns and uh of different vintages and varieties. So so a lot of it's I mean I I see my parents I don't know, five or six times a year, generally. And so every time I arrive at their house, the very first thing the dad wants to do is show me all of the new guns that he's gotten and talk, and talk about why he's gotten them and you know what their various merits are and, and why this one's really exciting and how this one has this special provenance and all of, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so it's be- really become kind of a collector's obsession f- for him. Mm-hmm. Does he have everything from like handguns to, you know, semi-automatic weapons and hunting rifles? Like what, what yes. kind of guns? Yes. Uh-huh. Um, he has lots of handguns. He has, you know, vintage militaria. He has assault rifles. He has um, 
He's got everything. <laughs> and describe the community that you grow up in that your your parents still live in. What, what's it like? Um, so I grew up in uh, Morgantown, West Virginia, um, which is a... <laughs> for West Virginia, it's a city. Yeah, it's um, a place I know for, well, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, you know, for the rest of the country, it's a small town. Um, and, you know, it's a college town, and... Most of what my family did, um, our primary recreation um, was, you know, getting outside and and uh, we, my family has a farm. Um, so we would, uh, you know, hang out on the farm and um, go shooting and do those sorts of things. Well, let me ask you, because I think I feel like your family having a farm can mean really different things in different parts of the world. In, in your part of West Virginia, what did it mean that you had a family farm? What was that land like? Uh, the, it, it's not agricultural. Um, I think, and that's common in West Virginia, you know, um, it's not a wealthy state, but I think there are a lot of people who have some acreage to where they live. And was there like a hunting camp there or what was it? What was there at the farm? Um, my my dad um, and well, you know, the rest of my family too would hunt on our farm. Yeah. Um but also it was, you know, kind of a place that my family would gather to um, get together and catch up and and see one another. And, and it was a huge part of my childhood mm-hmm. of just hanging out on the farm, playing with the dogs, jumping in the river. Um, you know, there, there was a barnyard with some animals in it that, you know, there's some chickens and a horse and... And that sort of thing. And and the farm is the thing that really feels like home when I think of my childhood. Jack says he started shooting with his family when he was seven years old. And when he was 12, he went hunting for the first time with his dad. He shot a rabbit, but he didn't instantly kill it. And he says its suffering was pretty horrible for him to watch. After that, Jack says he didn't like to go hunting. But he did enjoy some aspects of shooting with his dad, like when they'd go out and shoot clay pigeons. Some of my best memories with him are shooting clays, just, you know, the orange discs. He would be so proud and so happy when I would, you know, um, like, uh, you can you can nest them together in the launchers and throw multiple at the same time. And, like, when I would hit a triple, I'd mm-hmm. hit three of them, like, right in a row, Um he would just be like, yes, like he'd just be so happy. And I can't, I do cherish those memories. Like that, that is the one gun thing that I can hold on to that I love. Um, yeah. Um, do you still go shooting with him? Uh, yeah, not as much as I used to, um, because, you know, oftentimes I'll try to deflect or stay busy in another way. He he always talks about how it's a sport and how a gun is just like a tennis racket. And I'm like, well, Dad, the tennis rackets can't kill people. But do you say um, that? No, I don't. Uh-huh. But <laughs> I want to. But uh, so I have I have sort of mixed feelings about that because I do still enjoy shooting sporting clays with my dad. So, but you know, part of me is like, well, <laughs> if you're gonna you know take this this stance, you can't be wishy washy about it because I know that. If I am, he'll drive a truck through through me <laughs> and be like, "Well, you're you're being hypocritical, and you know it, it won't." I see. Yeah. So, so the 
the prospect of the conversation happening, it's intimidating, not just because of how it might change your relationship, but it's it's also like you feel like you have to stitch together your logic to not um, have it turn into like a political debate. Yes. Oh, very much so. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and my my father and I don't talk about politics. We haven't for many years. Yeah. Um, and you know that's sort of by mutual agreement. And I'm I'm okay with that. Like he can have different politics than me. That's not a problem. Mm-hmm. It's just that you know w- when when we talk about politics, we get we we go round and round, and we don't hear each other. And you know, all he wants is for me to smile and or not smile and nod, but all, all he wants is for me to defer to him and tell him that, you know, I respect him as my father. And all I want is for him to listen to what I'm saying and, and tell me that, you know, he sees me as an adult. So, and neither of us can get that in a political conversation. So, <laughs> so that we just don't have them. Um, but I, I do worry that if I tell him, Hey, I'm kind of done with, with guns that he'll, uh, he'll turn it into a political conversation or see it as one. And feel it as a rejection. And, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And feel it as a rejection. And that part of it really, really scares me, not just because, you know, I don't want to hurt his feelings, but because my father's bipolar. Um, And, you know, uh, his, he is subject sometimes to extreme mood swings and, I worry that I could push him into a depression, then I don't want to do that. Mm. Um, can I just pause and ask about, um, have the number of firearms in the house ever been seen to be uh, a, a risk because of his mental health? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I did not realize that like on a conscious level as a kid, but, um, so in, 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 uh, this would have been 1999. So I was, I just turned nine, I guess, 10. Anyway, um, uh, when, uh, Bush v. Gore, um, the presidential election, uh, right at first, it, it seemed like Al Gore had won just barely. And I came home from school and my dad, I found my dad in um, in the gun room in our house, uh, sitting on the floor, you know, in almost in the fetal position, cradling one of his assault rifles, crying. And I asked him what was wrong, and he said that Al Gore was going to come take his guns. Um, and that was not the last time that, you know, he's had, you know, these episodes where he's terrified that someone's going to come take his guns away. And it, it was really scary. Um, I didn't know how to process that at that age. And there was another time when I was more of a teenager that, that my grandfather did have to come and, and we, we loaded all of my dad's guns into his car and he drove away and there were no guns in the house for a few months because my dad was really, really depressed. And I think there was some concern that he would hurt himself. So, you know, I, once again, part of me thinks, oh, I'm not giving him enough benefit of the doubt. You know, he's very well medicated these days. He's pretty, he's, you know, more even than he has, than he was when he was younger. But I still, I don't know. I, I worry. Yeah. 
And I wonder, you know, as a as someone who is from West Virginia, like I have heard so many times people say in a dismissive way of rural voters, you know, oh my God, they think the government's going to come and take their guns away. Like kind of like look at these people who are, are so, um, uh, I don't know, like ignorant uh, is, is how mm-hmm. I've heard that comment. And so, yeah. I, oh, so, yeah. so I wonder for you to tell that story and to see your dad, like it, it wasn't made up. Like he was, his experience of that moment was feeling really personally terrified. Um, oh yeah. Like how do you understand what, what he was feeling in that moment when he was cradling this, this weapon because of the election results? I mean, in in his in his world, you know, which I think is it sometimes intersects with the world that we actually live in, and sometimes doesn't. Um, you know, in, in his worldview, that's what could happen, and and the likelihood of that went way up. And and his collection, his uh, you know, the most important objects in his life to him, a thing that he uses to define himself, was going to be taken away. And I mean, I think for anyone, if 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 your defining trait, your your most important way of seeing yourself, someone's trying to take that from you. I don't know how you react to it any other way than that. Coming up, we talk about another dimension of all this: how an open conflict with his dad could affect the other people in Jack's family. I, I do need to talk to my mom about th- this. I, I need to ask her what she thinks because, you know, it, I don't live with my dad and she does. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I always have to consider carefully what I do because if I send him into a, you know, a funk, I'm not the one who has to deal with the fallout she is. a major milestone at Death, Sex, and Money several weeks ago, our ninth birthday. We are now rounding the corner to being a tween podcast. Can you believe it? We started the show in May of 2014, and a lot has changed since then in the world and in my life. Like, I was unmarried and nursing some major commitment fears about getting involved again after a divorce. Now, I'm 42, married, with two kids, and on the verge of bringing a second dog into our family. We have been in continual production at Death, Sex, and Money since we started. And since this is our 10th summer, as we think about our upcoming 10-year anniversary, we'd like to hear from some of you about how your life has changed since you've been listening to the show. Whether you found us near the beginning or just a few months ago, we want to know if this show has helped you in any way or been a part of a big change in your life. Your answers will help us think about how to celebrate this upcoming milestone to mark the impact of what we've made together. So we have a survey with a few questions. There's a link to it in our show notes. And we want to know if the show or a particular episode prompted you to change something in your life. 
Like a listener told me not long ago that after listening to our episode about drinking, it helped her realize she needed to change her relationship with alcohol. And she's been sober since. Or we want to know if there's a line from an episode that has become something you think back on. Like when the actor Ellen Burstyn told us about declaring a shouldless day whenever she has unscheduled time after a period of busyness. There's a link to that survey again in our show notes, along with links to those episodes about drinking and with Ms. Burstyn. Thank you so much. And thank you for being a part of Death, Sex, and Money's increasingly long history. We can't wait to hear from you. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Jack says he was in college when he noticed that the way he felt about guns and his childhood surrounded by them was starting to shift. I started noticing gun violence, you know, in the news. Um, and that was scary. I also started thinking back more in my childhood and, and thinking about, you know, the the times that we've already talked about with my dad where, you know, people were worried that he was a danger to himself. Um, and oh, when, when I, before I came out, long before I came out, um, when I was in my early teens, I, I had a short period of a lot of, um, suicidal ideation and, and depression. And, you know, I thought about, well, if I do decide to kill myself, at least it'll be quick. And at the time, that was comforting. And saying it now, it sounds horrible, right? And, and it's just the thought that it's so easy. <laughs> it just, oh, it bugs me. And I, I know that guns are incredibly important to people. And I respect that. I really, really do. Like, you know, the hunting tradition is so important um, to a lot of people. And I don't think that that should be taken away from anybody. But I don't understand why, you know, my dad needs a ton of high-capacity assault weapons and, you know, semi-automatic pistols and all these things that are just so dangerous. Like, so, so dangerous. I mean, when I was a little kid... You know, we drilled safety all the time. Like, you know, you never point a gun at a person. This is where the safety catches is on this gun. And this is, you know, how you make sure to clear every weapon before you or the second it's handed to you and, and all of these different things, right? And that's a weird thing to be teaching a seven-year-old. Why, why? I just don't understand why we need that 
responsibility to be placed on someone so young. And now I suppose maybe I resent it being placed upon me. How many guns do you and your husband have in your house right now? Um, I sold most of them. Um, my husband has a twenty-two target rifle, um, and we still have his shotgun and my shotgun. Um, but I've disassembled them all. We have a safe because you have to have a safe. Um, like it's insane not to, but, uh, I've also disassembled them and, um, our plan is to get a safety deposit box and take the bolt, which is, you know, an integral part of the, the gun, um, to that safety deposit box and put it in there so that even if someone managed to break into our safe in our house, they would get a, you know, a useless hmm. object. So if you have this conversation with your dad, where where would it happen? How do you picture it? I'd have to do it with him in person. I need, I need him to see my face because I need him to know, like, know that mm-hmm. I care. Um, so I'd probably do it, you know, with him at his house or at our farm, one of the two. Do you feel like you need to tell your father this because you want to not be around his guns? I mean, I'd prefer not to be. (laughs) Yeah. um, I suppose maybe that, I mean, maybe it's not as complicated as that. It might be just as simple as I feel like my dad doesn't really understand me. And and I feel like this, in a way, would help. I'm just not sure it's something that he's going to be willing to hear. Mm-hmm. Because it's hard to say, I don't want to be around guns because gun culture means these things to me now. When that's so important to yeah. him. And for him not to hear it as judgment, because it is judgment. Yeah, because it is. And, I, and you know, I, what I want to say to him is, Dad, I love you. And I respect you. And this just isn't something that I want to be part of. And I i mean, I know he'll hear that as rejection because, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's what it is. You know, it's a rejection. And the alternative is so easy because all I have to do is just smile and nod. But I think he can tell that I'm more distant emotionally than I used to be, you know, a little bit, I'm, I'm, I say less, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I don't meet him in the middle in the conversation as much as I used to. And I think he can see that. And I think he doesn't know why. And I think he doesn't know how to ask. So, I feel like I'm hurting him this way. Because you're withdrawing. Yeah. Uh-huh. But I know I'm going to hurt him the other way. Yeah. I want to go back to um, your mom. I'm, I'm curious what the conversation with your mother would be like, because I don't know what her relationship is like with your dad. But when you're in a relationship with someone where you worry about um, extremes, swings and emotions, like I... 
I, I'm curious what her advice would be to you about how honest to be and, and how much management and pretending um, she'd advise. You know, it's an interesting question. I, I, uh, I don't know. Um, my mom just wants us all to get mm-hmm. along. <laughs> my, 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 my dad and my younger brother have a more contentious relationship than my dad and I do. Um, because they, my dad and my younger brother have reached the point where they have zero things in common. Um, so they really just don't interact well. And, I know that that really bothers mm-hmm. my mom. Um, so I I have a feeling that she will say to me that uh, that that's not a good idea to to uh, try to you know push this conversation with him, and that you know she, she'll basically tell me to do the bare minimum. Um, where it, when it comes to guns, but but try to you know stay engaged with him because he deserves to uh, you know have a good relationship with one of his sons, and this is how he does it. And if she says it's important for our family that he has a relationship with you, and this is the way he knows how to have a relationship with you, does that sway you one way or the other? It does. Um, if if that's what she says, I, I I can't do that. If if my mom tells me that she because what she would really be saying, or the way that I would read that, is is she needs me to have this relationship with him, and I I couldn't do that to her. I'm, if you can't tell, my mom and I are are a little bit closer than my dad and I are, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I. I can't bear the thought of hurting my mother. Like, I really, really can't. Do you think you know what you'll say, the words? Have you thought about that? Or is that something that you will, you will get to when you decide whether you're going to do it? Oh, I've, I've had this conversation in my head a thousand times. And, you know, I go, I come at it from different angles. And I I don't know what the best one is. I think... I think I'll have to be direct and just be like, you know, dad, I want you to know that I've sold most of my guns and that I don't feel the same way that I used to about guns in general. And that I, I I don't really want to, you know, continue to do things like going to the range. And I certainly don't want to go hunting or, or, uh, do anything like that because it's just not something that feels good to me anymore. I think I have to keep it short. One thing that um, when you were talking that really landed for me and I wonder what it would be like to hear as a parent is when you talked about the period of of your youth when you you were depressed and, and how you thought about guns and how I wonder... If you ever said that to him, how he would hear that? I don't know. I think it would make him feel guilty. 
And I don't want him to feel guilty. It's not his fault. He didn't do anything wrong, I don't think, as a parent. You know, he, he tried to share his passion with me. And my passions changed. That's not, that's not a commentary on him. It's just a reality. Soon after this first conversation with Jack, he reached out to his grandfather, his dad's dad, for some advice. I'm just going to read a little bit of it because I don't think I could put it better trying to paraphrase. So he said, I do not think it's dishonest to play the middle. It's no betrayal of your principles, nor is it lying. One can easily get over-principled here. Too much unneeded honesty can be bad stimulus. So do your best for gun control, applaud what you can in his ideas, and you will have found the middle ground. To get all holy about it, even though you feel that way, accomplishes nothing and leads to destructive places. Truth isn't black and white, and you certainly can't get there in one session. It has a practical side, and it's no betrayal of conscience to find a way to preserve the vital relationship by not saying everything you feel. In other words, Jack's grandfather was saying... It's okay to leave some things vague or even unsaid to preserve an important relationship. That email helped Jack decide not to talk with his dad, at least not in the way Jack was envisioning during our conversation. And now, two years later, Jack says he's really glad his grandfather wrote that. You know, he actually talks like that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's so... uh, Do you agree with him? I do. And, and that was really, that was really important advice for me. Um, at the time, um, it it was weird to get it over email because he had just had COVID and one of his vocal cords had frozen. So we couldn't Hmm. speak on a phone, but I think, I think reading it out and being able to kind of see it, you know, it really kind of sank in that like he is saying the relationship is more important than trying to win isn't the right word, but like it's meet him in the middle and he'll respect you for it. And and that's kind of what I've done since then. And it's, I don't know, my, my relationship with that is better than it has been in, you know, in my entire adult life easily. Jack says he and his dad are in close touch. They talk regularly on the phone, often about things they both still love. I watch Star Trek with him all the time, and there's a bunch of new Star Trek TV shows that are out now. So he's always calling me and being like, did you watch the most recent episode? And, you know, he wants to talk about it. And that's, you know, it's not guns. <laughs> so it's lovely. It's, it's, it's really nice. Guns, they don't talk about as much. But they do come up occasionally, particularly when there's another mass shooting in the news. I, I think he really grapples with it, and it... I think it's sort of damaged his feelings for the sport. Like, you know, it's still central to his identity. But, you know, he, he feels, I think, that people that, um, you know, commit these crimes, like, are sort of ruining the sport for everyone. But I think he also understands that the people that perpetrate them are generally troubled in some way. And I think that really scares him because he's a person who has mental health issues. And I think he thinks that the solution involves 
keeping people with mental health issues from having firearms, but he also doesn't want the solution to catch him in the net, if you if you know what I mean. Um, so it's it's a really challenging subject for him to think about. So I, I try not to bring it up, but sometimes he does with me. In a way that, do you think it's kind of like he's testing out, you know, he wants to know what you think about this stuff because he knows you've thought about it? I think he does, yeah. Um, and And I think he also... You know, sometimes he needs to think out loud um, because when he thinks silently, he can really get into loops. Um, So I think when he sounds things off of us, that sort of helps him to process in a way that's more, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, more final, less circular. Um, I have a question for you, and this is like, I'm not sure if this has been a place of distance with you and your your father. Um, but I'm curious, you know, I'm speaking to you at the end of Pride Month, and it's my impression that this has been a, a more politicized, hostile Pride Month that I can remember in at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I'm with your, when your parents are coming to visit the home you share with your husband. I don't know if you have any rainbow flags in your home or any other sort of, uh, you know, visible indications of of your politics around LGBTQ issues. But do you find yourself scanning your home for that and thinking about how your parents might respond? Uh, so, I mean, you know, my parents in general are pretty conservative. But I think on on this particular issue, they are, like, team gay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> <laughs> there, there is a pride flag. I don't have a pride flag, but my dad does. Oh, so, really? Where does yes. he keep it? It's on the side of his house. Oh, like it, it, it took him a long time to do that, but I think that was a way for him to demonstrate without saying, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm completely fine with your sexuality because I think he just doesn't know how to approach that conversation. Um, and quite frankly, I think I'd be really uncomfortable if he tried. <laughs> um. But, you know, he just put a pride flag on the side of his house. Didn't tell us he was going to do it. It just, you know, we showed up one day and it was there. And it's like, oh, huh. And I said to my mom, how long has that been there? And she was like, I don't know, a few months. And I was like, and and that was five years ago. You know, I I, I don't worry about with that with them. I think if I did, we we just wouldn't have a very good relationship at all. Well, I wonder, do you have any sense if, you know, the political environment in this moment, like, do you think it has moved your father one way or the other? Um. I've not had any conversations with him about, like, I suppose the subject of, of uh, in his parlance, corporations being too woke or or whatever. I'm a little afraid to go there because I don't know what I'm going to hear. And I don't know if he's really thought about how that intersects with, you know, the fact that there's LGBT people in his family. Uh-huh. But, you know, I don't know because I've not talked to him about it. Your parents are visiting soon, is that right? Yeah, yeah, in a few weeks. Do you think you will? I imagine it might come up. We'll we'll have to see. I know I know my husband would be like, you know, abort. <laughs> abort <laughs> not like he would not be happy with me. Um, you know, if I if I started talking about that sort of thing. 
How come? Because he would be afraid that dad and I would go round and round. We have a tendency to stop hearing each other and just sort of dig in. And, you know, that just gets more and more contentious until one of us has to leave the room. And we haven't had something happen like that in a long time. And I don't really want to repeat it because I just, I don't think it's healthy or helpful. Like, you know, I love my father and I want to spend time with him and have a good relationship with him. And if our interaction is a little bit more surface level than I would like it to be at times, that's okay. You know, like he, he's a, he's, he's really a very genuine person. What you see with him is what you get. Like truly, I'm okay with that. That's a listener we're calling Jack. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, please ask for help. You can call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Katie Bishop and Afi Yellow-Duke. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azule, Lindsay Foster-Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. Our intern is Christian Reedy. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Amr Shah in San Francisco, California, who is a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. Join Amr and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. Jack told us he wasn't totally sure what might come up in conversation during his parents' upcoming visit. But one thing he did know, there will definitely be some Star Trek. Even if we've seen it all already, he'll, I'm sure he'll just call it up on the TV and be like, you got to watch this scene with me and talk about, you know, the way they wrote this line or whatever. Like, he, he really likes to look at it in great detail. And I have, I have a lot of fun with that. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. WNYC.